Hey Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called 1 Corinthians Reviewed and is the 15th and final teaching in our 1 Corinthians series called Life in the Kingdom. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on February 5th, 2023. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Yeah. So uh, when I was in the seventh grade, I remember walking into my science class and I sat down in my assigned seat and after mentally measuring how far away I was from my secret crush that year, I prepared myself to learn about biology. And I remember being told by my teacher um, that we'd be skipping the first few chapters of our textbook specifically because they were too evolutiony, um, and because our teacher held that only uh, Genesis 1 had the relevant Earth-human origin story, we did not need to be exposed to this kind of nonsense. Um, and I actually wouldn't read a straightforward account of evolution or anything like that until after I graduated high school. And I believed uh, that the people who told me that this was dangerous uh, and blasphemous uh, were right for a long time, but I was always curious about the age of the earth and how life began and why, if it wasn't true, was it so dangerous? Um, I don't bring this story up because I like dunking on fundamentalist Christianity. There are too many people already doing that and it's beginning to feel a bit trite. Um, But I bring up this story because if my seventh grade teacher had assigned the first chapter of our biology textbook and explain things about the age of the earth, I might have learned some very valuable things about the world that I live in. Like, I would learn that there's a whole way of telling the earth's history based on the geological layers of rocks and fossils, which is really cool. I'm obsessed with time and the different ways that we measure it, the metaphors that we use to observe time. And in the seventh grade, I could have learned that the current geological time that we are living in is called the Holocene, which began after the last ice age nearly 12,000 years ago. But I might also have learned that some scientists debate whether we are living in a new age, an age in which the earth has been dramatically shaped by our human activity. This name for this age is called the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is the unofficial unit of geological time where we're currently living. It's the unofficial debated nature of this Anthropocene that I think I'm fascinated with. I'm not sure that seventh grade Caleb was ready for that, uh, but I guess we'll never know. My, My fascination with the Anthropocene age isn't just that people debate whether it's meaningfully different from the Holocene or that people debate when it started. Did it start with the Industrial Revolution and all the smoke that we put up into the air? Did it start with the atomic bomb being dropped? There are all different kinds of theories. I think what fascinates me about the Anthropocene is that we are living in an age in which our own actions affect our planet 
in such a way that we are in turn affected. It's that we're living in this giant feedback loop where the stuff that we do comes back to us from our environment like karma or a frisbee. It's that mostly, I think, though, that we've been trained to miss how our human activity, our own actions, affect us, affect our neighbors, affect our earth. We miss the negative effects a lot of times, but I think we also miss the profound beauty and complexity of living in a time like the Anthropocene. And I think we need the concept of the Anthropocene to understand how it is we read the Bible today. That the Bible has this effect on us, that when we read it, we are formed, we're shaped, we hear the words, we think about them. But in a more subtle way, we also have an effect on the story. We bring ourselves to it and all the things that are missing in between. John Green, um, one of my favorite writers, thinkers out there, um, came up with this idea to observe the Anthropocene world that we live in by starting a podcast. And this podcast turned into a book, if some of you may know John Green, may know this podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed. The premise of the show and the book was to observe and analyze the life of the Anthropocene, the things that go on in our daily lives, as if it were a Yelp review or something that you would put on Google. Reviews span the spectrum of the human experience. There's a review on Canada geese and Diet Dr. Pepper. There's a review on Super Mario Kart, scratch and sniff stickers and the Indianapolis 500, hot dog eating contests and chemotherapy, the capacity for wonder and sunsets. And he even did a show, as he, take a, as he took a break, uh, reviewing his own show, The Anthropocene Reviewed, Reviewed. And at the end of each episode, he gives these five-star ratings. Uh, Super Mario Kart, four stars, by the way. Scratch and Stiff Snickers, three and a half. Diet Dr. Pepper, four and a half. You get the idea, though. Um, and so today, uh, I would like for us to uh, do some reviews, a la John Green and the Anthropocene Reviewed. Uh, we're we're going to review the last chapter of Corinthians, this book that we've been studying for 15 weeks. If you haven't been with us, it's okay, because we're going to talk about it all today. Um, specifically, we're going to review the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, and then we'll review the book as a whole, and not just the book as a whole, but our experience of the book as a whole. So let's start with 1 Corinthians 16. It's important to remember uh, that this New Testament book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter from Paul to this new Christian community in a city called Corinth. And this is the end of the letter. Like, there's nothing after today what we're going to talk about. The end of the letter is where we expect things to be wrapped up, right? We expect things to come to a conclusion. We save the best for last. We, we say everything that we need to say at the end. That's not exactly how all ancient letters ended, though, and certainly is not the case with Paul's letter here. Uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the end, reads more like stuff you'd get CC'd on at the end of a business meeting email. Um, it reads like a to-do list and a travel log and the acknowledgement section at the beginning of a book all mashed up into one. 
So let's read 1 Corinthians 16. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, you should follow the directions I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever extra you earn so that collections need not be taken when I come. And when I arrive, I will send any whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So, Paul ends this letter by asking for money. I actually get a lot of these letters. I don't know about you, usually from places I've already given a bunch of money to. But Paul is very clear about where this money is going. And it seems as though these instructions that he's writing down here aren't new to the Corinthians. He's told them this stuff before. What Paul is actually doing here is taking up donations for this Jerusalem-centered church um, of Jewish Christians, which was really the beginning, the, the, uh, the headquarters of the Jesus movement. And on the one hand, the Christians in Jerusalem were pretty poor, from what we understand. They needed the money, um, but this actually wasn't like some kind of ancient GoFundMe campaign. Paul is actually, in raising this money and sending this envoy of people with this gift, attempting to broker a giant reconciliation project between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Uh, Shira Lander notes that if the Jerusalem community accepted this donation from these Gentile churches, they would, in, in a real sense, be accepting the Gentile community as one of them. What Paul is doing here is actually pretty radical. This giving campaign is about helping people in poverty, yes, but it's actually about reconciling different communities who are devoted to Jesus. Almsgiving, or charity, in the Jewish tradition was actually understood almost like sacrifice. It was something that atoned for sin. It was something that was divine. In fact, Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem often sent funds to the temple in Jerusalem, even though they didn't live there. It was as if the funds took the place of their sacrifices. So the fact that Paul is sending money to Jerusalem, this financial donation, along the same lines as almsgiving and financial sacrifice, is a pretty radical statement considering that the temple in Jerusalem is still standing there. In some sense, Paul is saying that providing for other churches in this Jesus movement, participating with the church across the world, is the same thing as participating in the temple in Jerusalem. It's an act that binds people together under the same identity. And so I always think it's kind of funny that passages like this get turned into sermons about giving and tithing back to the church. This is where you wanted me to say something about the boxes and online giving, right? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That stuff is very important. Um, but the specific purpose of this financial giving in this letter was about making reconciliation between historically separated people groups. It was about meeting needs within the church. It wasn't about making sure that we can pay our bills. At the end of this letter, Paul is not trying to make sure that you give exactly 10% the, to the church, which is great if you do. Paul is trying to make sure that people are included and that poverty is alleviated. 
And so Paul wants the Corinthians to plan ahead and send this gift to Jerusalem, to their friends there in the future. And then the rest of the letter ends almost like a haphazard stream of consciousness about the things on Paul's to-do list mixed in with some words of wisdom. So let's read. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay there with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way whenever I go. I do not want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord just as I am. Therefore, let no one despise him. See him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers and sisters. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come visit you with the other brothers and sisters, but he was not at all willing to come. He will come when he has an opportunity. So at the end of this letter, uh, Paul is setting up couch surfing appointments and, and who will come visit the Corinthians and apparently who just won't. Um, Timothy, Paul's protege, is coming. He should be expected. Apollos, one of these letters, if you were here with us at the beginning, who was mentioned, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 3, um, one of these leaders that the Corinthians were fanboying and fangirling over, uh, think that it's best that if he just didn't come at all. It's a little too dicey there right now. But what strikes me about the end of this letter is just how mundane it is. How it reads like bullet points on an email or something from a text thread. And then Paul drops this line out of nowhere that basically sums up the whole book. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, Keep alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Honestly, this is like the tweet version of the entire letter. Stay alert, be firm, be strong and courageous, do everything in love. Molly, why did we spend 15 weeks on this? I mean, regardless of how you felt about this letter up to this point or what your past experiences are with Paul or the letter of 1 Corinthians, who could be against this? Who could be against this advice? The letter comes to a pretty rapid end after this. Paul recognizes certain people who have helped him and deserve praise. Paul sends greetings from Christians that are around him to the Corinthian church. He mentions the household of Stephanus, um, a group of people who had been uh, essential in the Corinthian church. He mentions these Romans, Fortunatus and Achaicus, the churches of Asia, Aquila and Prisca, together with their house church. And then this is the end of the letter. It's this wish list of traveling destinations, some final wisdom, some people who deserve attention in the community. And then Paul adds his personal signature. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Sometimes people didn't write the whole letter, they just wrote the end. Let anyone be accursed who has no love for the Lord. 
our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. This exclamation here at the end, uh, our Lord come, is actually Aramaic. And it's this phrase, Maranatha, which is almost like a prayer and a liturgical response all at once. Paul ends this letter, this giant letter, with his signature. He, he ends it with a prayer that longs for a world to be made new. He longs for grace and for love to be with this Christian community in Corinth. The end. Uh, I love how simple this ending is. After all the lofty language that we've read about freedom and its meaning and love and the resurrection, Paul ends with a list of places, names, and a prayer. And this is the church in a nutshell. This is a human community. Stanley Hauerwas writes in The Peaceable Kingdom, we believe the very existence of the church to be a miracle. However, to speak of the church as a continuing miracle simply does not sound like any church we know or experience. The church is not just a community, but an institution that has budgets, buildings, parking lots, potluck dinners, heated debates about who should be the next pastor, and so on. There is no ideal church, no invisible church, no mystically existing universal church more real than the concrete church with parking lots and potluck dinners. No, it is the church of parking lots and potluck dinners that comprises the sanctified ones formed by and forming the continuing story of Jesus Christ in the world. In effect, the church is the extended argument over time about the significance of that story and how to best understand it. The Corinthian church was nothing if not an extended argument. It was a mess. And I love the portrayal of this church in this letter in its mess and its brokenness way more than some idealistic history of the church's formation. Because the Corinthian church is the only kind of church I've ever been a part of. It's the only kind of church I've ever actually seen. And like the Anthropocene world that we live in, we're just a group of people formed by and forming the continuing story of God in the world and each other. And 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think, at the end of this letter, seems to capture that. So, I give 1 Corinthians 16 four and a half out of five stars. But what about the letter as a whole? How, how do we feel about 1 Corinthians, the letter? How do we feel about Paul? How do we feel about this 15-week study that we've just been going through and are now wrapping up? This week, I had a friend ask me uh, what we were studying at my church. And I said, we're about to finish a 15-week study on 1 Corinthians. And he paused for a while and he said, wow, 15 weeks in 1 Corinthians, that's brave. <laughs> There's only so many ways, he said, you can tell a group of people that they're stupid. <laughs> this is a letter <laughs> where Paul calls his beloved brothers and sisters fools a lot. 
Paul talks about coming to visit them with a stick. He mixes eloquent poetry with really confusing directions. Can women speak or can't they? Should I get married or shouldn't I? Which cultural distinctions matter and which ones don't? I mean, one of the easiest places, I think, to agree with Paul in this letter is that people shouldn't be sleeping with their stepmothers. I mean, that's an easy one. (laughs) And I like that Paul kind of chews out this church for making the Lord's Supper the common meal, just another Roman drinking party where social status and money are all that matters. I mean, I can get behind that. Paul says when the church elevates money and power above people, it is just another meaningless gathering of people. But then I go back and forth about where I think Paul applied that evenly across the letter. I mean, I really want a more robust condemnation of slavery in chapter 7. I really want the gender hierarchy to be upended a bit more in chapters 7, 11, and 14. I really hate that Paul vacillates between the tone of a compassionate parent and then at times, it seems, a gaslighting preacher. And I totally recognize that most of the problems that I have, at least with Paul here in this letter, come from the gap between my culture and his, this void of understanding between us, which means that I really simply can't give a Yelp review on 1 Corinthians by itself. It's just not possible. Because it's very likely that half of our community would be offended with anything but a five-star review. I mean, I can't imagine myself 15 years ago sitting idly by while someone stood up and gave a book of Scripture a two-star rating. Isn't this like the word of the Lord, thanks be to God? But I also know that there's some stuff in this letter that just really doesn't fly anymore. You can't just get away with saying, different time, different place. When some of these words quite literally are triggering for people who have gone through religious trauma... For, for people who have had these specific verses used against them. And I know that there are some of you who are really hoping that I'm about to go all Karen on Paul and leave a withering review of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians for the world to see. But I can't get away from that Stanley Hauer lost line. The church is the extended argument over time about the significance of God's story and how best to understand it. He goes on later to say in this same line, we never know what it is we should believe or be until we are reminded by another. See, there are these times in Paul's letter to the first Corinthians where he reminded me of something valuable. First Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, he says, take care that this liberty, this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. And I want to remember that. I want to remember that it's not really just about me. If what I believe, what I do, what I say somehow hurts someone else. I want to remember what Paul said when he said, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. We use this phrase, the weakness of God, to encapsulate this idea, I want to remember that there has to be something beyond me that even in weakness is somehow strength. And so as I come to the end of this series, 
the end of this teaching, in the end of this ridiculous exercise of reviewing Corinthians, whether you like Paul or not, whether you enjoyed reading this letter or not, this community, I think, crossings, needed to extend the argument about the story of God in the world through this letter. We needed to enter into a conversation with Paul and the Corinthians so that we should know what it is we should believe. We, we needed to be troubled by the fact that the Scripture does not conform perfectly to our political affiliations or our ideological values. We needed to be reminded by Paul. We needed to be reminded by the Corinthians. We needed to be reminded by the people in this community, a community as diverse as Corinth, because it's the continuous engagement, I think, that we need. Not blind loyalty to Paul or our favorite pastor or our most tightly held doctrines. It's the conversation that matters more than converting others to think like us. It's our commitment to the story, to, to the common meal table that unites us, that matters more than the thousands of other things that we bring into this room that could potentially divide us. And so to steal a line from John Green when he reviewed his own podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed, you, the church at Crossings, have made this two-star or five-star letter of 1 Corinthians a five-star experience. Would you pray with me? O oh God of light and darkness, may your searching spirit reveal and illumine your presence in creation. Shine your radiant otherness into our lives so that we may offer our hands and our hearts to your work. To heal and to shelter, to feed and to clothe, to break every bond of oppression and silence evil. 